This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Joining us to uh, talk us through the Fringe program's breadth and depth is Simon Abrahams, the creative director and CEO of Melbourne Fringe. Simon, a very good morning to you. Happy Fringe. Happy Fringe, Richard Watts, Melbourne Fringe living legend. How are you? I'm well indeed. I'm very much looking forward to diving into this year's festival. There's a... I think the official term in the art sector is a shitload of things to talk about in the festival. There is a veritable shitload. But uh, none of it shit. It's all genius and brimming with joy and delight and innovation and ingenuity. And this is, I like to describe Melbourne Fringe as when Melbourne's creative kind of soul is on display. Totally. It's the absolute moment to just leap into the unknown, you know, dive into the madness that is Melbourne Fringe. And it really does kind of see all of those ideas bubbling up to the surface for 18 glorious days. Starting today, the festival opens today. So happy Fringe indeed. And while it's uh, one of the things that makes Melbourne Fringe unique, as we've talked about before, is the fact that unlike uh, Fringe World in Perth, for example, or Adelaide Fringe or the the juggernaut uh, and grandmother of them all, the Edinburgh uh, Festival Fringe, they are dominated by works from interstate overseas. Melbourne Fringe, we've got plenty of work from interstate and overseas, but the core of the Melbourne Fringe program is art made by and for Melbournians. Absolutely. And I think the other thing that differs about Melbourne Fringe is, in fact, a lot of people don't know that Melbourne Fringe predates the Melbourne Festival. In fact, it didn't start as a festival, as a fringe to another festival. It really has always been a festival in and of itself. So, you know, in 1982, when when uh, a group of artists got together and decided to create the Fringe Arts Network, which became Melbourne Fringe, it really was about, you know, celebrating independent artists and experimental and contemporary work. And I feel like the heart of that is still there, you know. It really is about people taking risks and discovering new ideas. And that notion of experimental and contemporary can sound a little bit scary, but... It doesn't mean contemporary art is difficult or dense or abstract or dry or any of those things. It just means it's being made now and responding to the world now. Totally. And this year we've created... Uh, what we've called three comfort zones. So every show in the festival is labelled as being either inside the comfort zone, which means it's pretty safe. You know, if you're not sure about, you know, what kind of level of risk you want to take, you can see something inside the comfort zone and know that there won't be any audience participation or anything too strange. You can see something pushing the comfort zone, which maybe is just starting to get a bit weird. Or you can see something that is outside the comfort zone. If you're up for experimental, participatory, weird things, we got those too. Excellent. Uh, that's kind of what I want. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I want, I don't know, I, don't, I want naked bodies wrapped in duct tape and uh, being invited in to participate in some kind of contemporary art ritual. I want that. But I also want straightforward stand-up and I want a nice, well-written piece of theatre and then I want something provocative. Uh, I want live art. I want to vote about whether capitalism works for me or not. Literally, we have all of those things. So, indeed, you can head to the website and filter your search and work out what kind of art form you want, when you want to do it, what level of risk you want to take. Or as you say, opening today, we have uh, a public artwork called Capitalism Works For Me. It's by an amazing New York 
um, artist called Steve Lambert, and he's setting up uh, today. They'll be outside the state library with uh, this giant capitalism giant sign that says capitalism, and uh, anyone can come up and vote and have a conversation about capitalism and decide ultimately whether it works for them. Now. The, this was part of the Festival of Live Art earlier in the year and I already know that depending on where it is situated, it would get a different response. So if you put it out the front of the Stock Exchange on Collins Street, I'm expecting that the majority of votes would be, yes, capitalism works for me. If you put it outside in the case of the State Library where it's going to have lots of students participating and so on, it could skew the results in a very different way. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting. So we're, we're in four different places across Fringe. So we're at the State Library, um, in Burke Street Mall, uh, at the Night Market and then um, at the Fringe Hub in North Melbourne. So, you know, exactly as you say, I suspect perhaps the audience that we might be getting at the Fringe Hub in North Melbourne might be different to those uh, in Burke Street Mall and, and the market. So it will be really interesting to see whether capitalism works for Melbourne. Yeah. Now, speaking of Melbourne, one of the things that Melbourne Fringe is doing this year in uh, participation with field theory and aphids is you're finding and identifying and celebrating a Melbourne icon. And we're not talking uh, under the clocks at Flinders Street Station icon. We're not talking um, uh, MCG or other kind of iconic parts of the Melbourne landscape. We're talking about an ordinary Melburnian who will become iconic through the power of live art. Yeah, it's a pretty extraordinary work. So for the last month... Uh, we've had registrations open for any citizen of Melbourne to sign up to become the icon. Uh, registrations closed yesterday uh, and today um, the icon of Melbourne will be chosen and from tomorrow um, the artists of field theory will become artists in residence in their life, literally. They're going to live with this person um, and then over the course of the next three weeks uh, during Melbourne Fringe, they will make an entire show about this ordinary everyday citizen, which will culminate on the last day of Fringe on Sunday the 30th of September in a giant festival of the ordinary, of this everyday person um, at Fed Square. So I don't know what's going to happen, but, you know, there might be a gospel choir singing their favourite Song. There might be an ice sculptor of their grandmother. There might be a team of hairdressing hairdressers giving every Melbourneian their haircut. Who knows? But there's going to be this ridiculous, fantastic celebration of everyday citizenship. Now, something else that's unique about Melbourne Fringe this year is you've got a whole program focused on experimental, contemporary and live art for children up to 12 years. Yeah, it's been an absolute long-term dream of mine to put together this program and um, we really wanted to think about how families could play together and I just think that children come to art with the most open-minded, you know, interest. Um, they've got no set of form or expectation and they really come to contemporary art with the most beautiful open hearts and minds. So we wanted to create this program. We've called it XS um, to look at how families can play together. So, for example, we've created a giant game of truth or dare where families play together and uh, children ask adults questions about the adult world and adults either have to answer them or else do a dare. I mean, what could go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> 
Richard. That sounds slightly terrifying. But... Indeed, it, indeed, it will be. I think, but it'll be fantastic and free. And we've we've tried to put together a lot of interesting free work. So there's Truth or Dare, Infinity Dance Jam, and a whole kind of celebration for everybody that will be happening uh, at Northcote Town Hall. And then there's works right across Melbourne at the Substation uh, at Art Play. There's a whole series of works at Art Play that are around sound work and sound installations and participatory work. So there's a work for infants, for babies aged up to 12 months and their, and their carers um, right through to children aged 12. So one of the things that I love about that is that there, there's a bit of a cliche that young people are the audience of tomorrow. No, they're the audience of now and they have every right to deserve provocative, intelligent art created for them in the same way that you or I do. Totally. And in fact, you know, they're, they're sort of up for it in a really interesting way, you know, um, and, and I find that so exciting and so interesting. So we were like, let's create a virtual reality performance, you know, for children. Let's put um, Philip Adams Ballet Lab uh, and make a contemporary dance for kids. Uh, let's make a work in the backseat of a car uh, or in this case it's a bus. Um, you know, children go in buses all the time. What happens if the work happens on the streets of Newport while people drive around the city. So we really wanted to play with this idea of, you know, what art for children can be and sort of below that idea of, you know, the Wiggles as being what kids' entertainment's about right out of the water. Now... Traditionally, festival programs are often divided up into some kind of navigable way because we know that plenty of artists are making work that blurs boundaries, that doesn't fit into a neat box. But nonetheless, if, you to, if you're maybe new to Fringe and you're looking for an entry point, that notion of picking up the, the program at your local bookshop, cafe, uh, wherever, um, so divided up into categories. So you can, you've got comedy, you've got visual art, you've got performance, you've got music, uh, you've got live art, you've got dance, you've got cabaret and so forth so all those kind of zones are there but i wanted to ask about some of the the fringiest of the fringe because that's part of the stuff that floats my boat i understand there's kind of what a five-hour work responding to a tram trip yeah so uh, indeed there's a we've got a number of durational works there's a durational work called 19 magnified observations which takes place outdoors uh, at the brunswick town hall uh and it is about the number 19 tram i mean how melbourne fringe is that it's fantastic so if you want to see a contemporary a contemporary interpretive dance about the number 19 tram melbourne fringe can provide that for you there's also uh one of my favorite works, and I mean this quite seriously, it's an extraordinary work that I saw in Edinburgh, is a four-hour durational work called Breakup. It's on next Sunday, the 22nd of September at the North Melbourne Town Hall. And uh, over the course of four hours, a relationship is formed and breaks up. Uh, and it's an entirely improvised work. You don't have to sit there for the whole four hours. You can just come for an hour or see another show and pop in and out. Um, but it's really, truly one of the most extraordinary works I've seen in years. So, break up. We need to talk. I have to definitely add that one to the list. Speaking of the North Melbourne Town Hall and the Fringe Hub, Fringe is traditionally open access, but there's a little bit of curation going on as well at the Hub, which is the North Melbourne Town Hall, the Lithuanian Club, uh, which a venue I love and adore, and ah, Krupnikism. 
It's amazing uh, and uh, delicious. And the, the warehouse as well. So you've got those kind of three venues and multiple, multiple spaces. So that's where people can catch the Fringe Club. So where you'll get a bit of a, a smorgasbord of performance to give you an idea of what's in the festival and what to see. That's it. Yeah, there are some fantastic events. They're all free. Little Ones Theatre, who you might know, of course, through their um, fantastic queer work of putting together a big party for us uh, that's all about the one and only Whitney Houston. Uh, we have, you know, uh, Speed Dating in there, Wolf and Wild, which is a partnership with the Wheeler Centre, doing a big party. So all sorts of fantastic events happening in there. So that's the Fringe Club at the Hub in North Melbourne. But don't make the mistake of thinking that the Fringe is just clustered in and around uh, North Melbourne, Northcote uh, and the, the inner city and the CBD. The, the western suburbs have got a whole fringe program going on, for example. That's right. We've got a whole Westside fringe program, which actually is full of extraordinary work. There's an, a work called Lake, um, which is happening in Strathmore in a pop-up park. And the artist is a guy called Nick Barlow, who's actually been uh, just been touring the world with Cirque du Soleil and has just come back and he's created an installation that is completely free where you can go and make your own costume, your own outfit out of uh, recycled plastic and then uh, help create an installation together. There's also Anya Anastasia, uh, Moira Finucane, all performing uh, west of Melbourne as well. There's a lot of work happening sort of around Werribee and Footscray and um, Newport, a a lot happening in the west. Now, there's also works, as we've said, a lot being made by and for Melbourne and Melbourne artists, but uh, artists from interstate and from overseas as well. So there's uh, in recent years we've seen an upswing in uh, artists from Aotearoa, New Zealand. For example, I know from Adelaide there's a, a work coming that I've heard fantastic things about called 19 Weeks. Coming to Melbourne Fringe, I imagine, for artists from interstate or our close neighbours could be a bit of a risk in some ways. They don't have an audience base here, a following here. How does Melbourne Fringe help connect artists from interstate with local audiences? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely part of our job is about making sure that that new audiences can connect with some of this fantastic touring work. So I definitely recommend jumping on some of those. Breakup, which I talked about before, is from New Zealand. There's a fantastic work from New Zealand called uh, My Best Dead Friend, which I absolutely adored when I saw it. Uh, It's a work that um, on the surface is a a story that is about the time um, uh, uh, this woman's um, best friend was killed in a car accident, but it's actually heartwarming and fun and funny with the Backstreet Boys as a fantastic kind of narrative through line. Uh, 19 Weeks, which you mentioned from Adelaide, is one of the most extraordinary pieces of theatre. It's a tech text-based theatre work, but it happens um, in the Adena Hotel swimming pool. And as an audience, you sit around the edge and the work happens in the pool in front of you. So I absolutely would put that on the list. And there's a work from Ireland that I also loved when I saw it in Edinburgh. It's called Existentialism. And uh, it's a beautiful show that is a woman in her 30s kind of deciding whether or not to have children. But it's actually a really interesting work, uh, that uh, interesting work that looks at the history of the Irish abortion laws. So there's some interesting provocative thoughts provoking fantastic theatre coming from interstate and overseas as well. And then, of course, there's some straightforward circus, there's some comedy, there's some uh, 
innovative and uh, an experimental circus as well, if that's more your thing. Uh, and there's hubs of activity happening all over the city as well. Yeah, that's right. So there's places like uh, Theatre Works in St Kilda have, has a big program. Uh, the Alex in St Kilda as well. In Paran, you've got the MC Showroom. You've got the Space, both with massive programs, of course. North of the River, you've got the Brunswick Mechanics Institute, uh, Testing Grounds, who've come together uh, with their program called Critical Mass. Dance House have got a massive program. So there's all sorts of fantastic um, venues across Melbourne that are putting together big programs. And the Butterfly Club right in the centre of town with a massive cabaret comedy theatre. And even the even Art Centre Melbourne, that big pointy edifice, uh, has a fantastic show um, by the extraordinary choreographer Stephanie Lake called Colossus that puts 50 dancers on stage at the Fairfax studio, which is in fact more people than can fit on that stage. So, Richard, I don't know how it's going to work either. I'm looking forward to finding out. I've been chatting with its creative director and CEO, Simon Abrahams. Simon, congrats to you and your huge team. Uh, Many, many people working behind the scenes to make Fringe happen for all. So thank you and have a great festival. Thanks, Richard. You too. Rose Hiscock is the director of Science Gallery Melbourne and joins us to talk about a new, uh, well, I was going to say new exhibition, but it's more than just an exhibition. It's part exhibition, part experiment. Rose, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Richard. For people who aren't familiar with Science Gallery Melbourne, which is still in its development phase, I guess, it will have a home of its own eventually, but right now it's being hosted by the Melbourne School of Design at the University of Melbourne. That's where the current exhibition is on. What is Science Gallery Melbourne? Richard, we're embryonic at the moment. So we're a gallery space uh, for the intersection of arts and science, but we're also, uh, dare I say, a global phenomena. So we started in Dublin in 2008, our network of, of galleries dedicated to arts and science at Trinity College, Dublin. And really Trinity set up this gallery space and it was phenomenally successful and so then they just pretty much put it out to the world to see who else, what other universities around the world would be interested in this model of art science and inspiring young people particularly into the sciences and the arts and so we're now building these galleries in London so if anyone's going to London in the next uh, week actually uh, our new gallery there opens on the 21st of September. We're building them also in Bangalore, uh, Venice and a pop-up in Detroit and uh, as part of the University of Melbourne's new innovation precinct, which will be built on the site of the former women's hospital on the corner of Grattan and Swanson Street. I know it's a building close to many people's hearts. Um, And so we open as a a building in uh, late 2020. And in the meantime, we're doing pop-up exhibitions. Yeah. So this is the second exhibition. The first one was looking at blood and now looking at perfection, which is an intriguing idea to explore. Uh, We live in clearly an imperfect world Mm. in which we are bombarded with marketing messages about try to be perfect and whether that's, I know, uh, get the perfect score uh, in secondary school so you can go to the best university, whether it's improve your teeth, your hair, your skin, your body overall. Why choose perfection as a theme to explore? It's such a delicious theme, really. For all of those reasons, Richard, you can come into it from any angle. But actually the way we determine our themes is very democratic. So we talk to experts. So we have a a think tank 
that we call our Leonardos, and they're people like um, the artist Stalark, Patricia Piccinini, Brooke Andrew. Uh, then we have scientists like um, uh, Peter Doherty, Fiona Stanley, broadcasters, uh, tech experts. We sit them down in a room twice a year and say, what matters? They come up with a really big list, and then we start talking to uh, young people, 15 to 25-year-olds. So we have a, a team of, um, we call them a Curious, and they work with us on our themes and they shape them. And so we know that by the time we've landed on a theme, we've got something that matters. And so that's how we came up with perfection. Well, it's clearly a really resonant theme for so many reasons and would then allow artists and scientists to, to collaborate, explore and present work in provocative but playful ways. Yeah, that's that's you've, you've hit it on the head. So, so we call ourselves part exhibition, part experiment for a really particular reason. One is that um, we want people to come in and, and ha- be part of a conversation instead of just being dished up something final. And so a lot of our works, we've, there's about 22... Uh, works in this exhibition, installations, half are uh, through um, international artists, half are local, and many are a provocation between sometimes an academic and a researcher alongside an artist. And that then enables a conversation that wouldn't otherwise happen. Do you want me to bring it to life for you? Let me yeah, let me tell you yeah. about an, one particular installation that'll... I know it sounds all a little bit obtuse, but okay, so when you walk into our gallery, you'll, you'll, be, conf- you'll be confronted in your first decision to participate in something called the biometric mirror. And to participate, you'll have to... It's a research project. You'll have to sign a consent form. You then sit in a booth and you'll have your photograph taken. The photograph is matched with an algorithm that our researcher, Dr Niels Walters, has made alongside his colleagues at the University of Melbourne. He'll You'll match your face against a, da- a data set and you will be fed back a whole bunch of very invasive information about yourself, such as your age, your gender, pretty straightforward. Then your attractiveness, your, percent- your percentage attractiveness, weirdness, responsibility. Then we will sculpt your face using another algorithm uh, developed by a Hollywood plastic surgeon based on the golden ratio of a mathematically perfect face. So we then perfect your face. It sounds slightly terrifying. (laughs) Why do you think people strive for perfection? Because it feels like in the contemporary age we live in that maybe it's uh, something about modern life. uh, We strive for perfection because people are trying to sell us things. So it it could be an uh, an offshoot of capitalism. But I suspect it's been part of the human condition for kind of thousands and thousands of years because if you look at early myths, the gods are in Mm. some ways perfect Mm. representations Mm. of the human form. Although even the gods, like the Greek gods, etc., are imperfect because they're they're committing adultery, they're fighting, they're drinking, they're getting into trouble. So why why do we strive for this? Look, it's such a great great question, and it's and and of course in in doing an exhibition about perfection, we want to talk about imperfection and our quest for perfection. I think it's a it's a it's actually a growing phenomenon. And if you talk to young people today, um, this sense of needing to be perfect uh, is. Is, is, I think it's always been there, as you say, Richard, but I think it's, it's, we're hitting a really ramping up of that, particularly driven by social media. So our technologies are enabling us in our uh, quest for perfection. And again, in the exhibition, what you'll, the first thing you, actually, you, you see is a massive inflatable object that's held up 
by social media likes. I, I've heard about this one. So this is that it literally inflates if you say something nice about it and deflates if you criticise it. Correct. In fact, if, if anyone is, is listening to this and they hashtag perfection right now, uh, out there will be an inflatable orb in the gallery that starts inflating and then deflates. It becomes this flaccid kind of piece once it doesn't have any likes. And look, we know in talking to young people, this sort of um, obsession to, to sculpt your perfect person online, uh, to create the, to respond immediately, to create the image of yourself that you want. Um, it's be, it's extending it into, into plastic surgery. So there are people um, taking on plastic surgery uh, to enhance their bodies for their social media self, for their other self, and also cosmetic surgery, um, such as the rise of labiaplasty uh, to just enhance one's body. The, the social media aspect kind of fascinates and terrifies me because there's that whenever somebody says, oh, I'm going to talk honestly about my depression or my bulimia or I've just had a shit miserable week, there's a real sense that in some ways they're, they're breaking a taboo because we're only supposed to represent our best possible self mm. online. Yeah, it's really true. And, and you know, we've seen it with um, in careers have been ruined by someone actually saying something honest on, on Twitter or, or, or a social media feed. So, you know, we do, we, we curate our our. our personality and, and who we are on online and that's a really interesting for those of us in the role in the in the world of museums and galleries and curating experiences for people we want to put that sort of curatorial power back in the back in the hands of our visitors so they are participating in what they're what they're seeing the risk for museum culture clearly and galleries as well is that you then end up uh pandering for more for uh representation on instagram and uh, and mm. social media feeds rather than solid provocative work how do you kind of balance that particular conundrum oh it's a great question and particularly in this exhibition which is you know that, so so on one level this this exhibition is quite surface level it's things that we know but you dig in deeper and deeper and we start raising questions that are big that are quite, quite uncomfortable. Um, we're working with a, a, a local artist and a biohacker, uh, Jaden Hastings. And Jaden works with um, inserting um, uh, bi bi biology, biotech into her body, such as a, her transport card. She has her transport card in, inserted into her hand. She's done this amazing work where her own D DNA sequence is then hacked by a robot that looks for abnormalities and and then creates a report back to us. So what we're doing there is talking about um, biohacking, talking about DNA sequencing, CRISPR, uh, the changes that are happening in terms of our technology and our bio biological understanding, and then putting a layer of technology over it and saying, well, what about if we put the robots in control? There's a range of artists. I think there's all up. There's 22 different projects from local and international artists represented, exploring not only the idea of perfection, but why we strive for it, the hows and the whys, and the impact and the intersection of science and creativity. Now, the artist uh, Patricia Piccinini, I know, is represented in there because her work, Graham, which uh, was, I think, what, developed as a, as a way to show the perfect body to withstand uh, 
a motor vehicle crash. Correct. And, and Patricia's been with us through our science gallery journey all, all the way through too. She's one part of our Leonardo group. Uh, yeah, but I, I think it's actually quite visionary for the TAC. Instead of making another car ad, they commissioned Patricia to make Graham. Graham is Graham's actually quite likeable, but he is a very, very odd uh, shape and character. He has, a, he has no neck. He has a head... Uh, that's large enough to withstand a chamber around his brain. He has little airbags in between his ribs. Uh, he has an elongated foot. And so she worked alongside um, uh, uh, practitioners at the Royal Melbourne Hospital to inform the science into Graham. And that's exactly the way we like to work. We like to see an artist um, alongside um, a, a scientist. Uh, but Richard, we also have another robot. Uh, we have another character in our show and I've fallen a little bit in love with Harmony. So Harmony is a companion robot. Uh Otherwise that sounds known. like a euphemism. <laughs> <laughs> it is indeed. Uh, otherwise known as a sex robot. She's in safe mode. So we've popped her in safe mode. She occasionally branches into sort of some borderline discussion, but it's, it's safe. Um, you can have the most extraordinary conversation with Harmony. So I, I um, asked her, started off saying, what's your name? And she said, my name's Harmony, but give me a nickname. So I said to her, well, let's call you Perfection. You ask Harmony now her name. She says, my name is Harmony, but I like to be known as perfection. So she's incredibly adaptive. She, she has an algorithm that sits behind her. She has, a f she has really quite extraordinary facial um, 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 gestures. She talks to you. She engages. She looks at you. She winks. Uh, she's really quite extraordinary. Uh, and also then evoking presumably the kind of the uncanny valley effect as well, that she's almost too perfect, so can't be human. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, and you know, for us, again, this, this, um, this exploration of perfection, we're starting to ask, well, what is our perfect partner, you know, and, and who are they? And are they human? Are they android? What is it that they can do that we can't? And who's in control? I've been chatting with Rose Hiscock, the director of Science Gallery Melbourne. Rose, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Richard. Joined now in the studio by Sasha Grishin, who is a, a man of many talents. He is an author, a curator, a critic, uh, an academic and much more, but joins us to talk about an exhibition that's on at the Ian Potter Centre, NGV Australia at Federation Square, called uh, Baldessen Whiteley, Parallel Visions. Sasha, welcome to Triple R. Good day, Richard. Lovely to have you back in. It's been a while since we caught up. So, uh, Tell us, this is an exhibition which kind of pairs and examines the work of two Australian artists who were, were born quite close uh, in terms of uh, the times they were born. Similar elements of practice in some ways. Both died young. However, Brett Whiteley has been kind of almost canonised in the Australian art world, whereas uh, George Baldessen much less known, in the, certainly in the popular eye. Why pair these artists together in the exhibition? It's a good question, and I think it goes back a little while. I was working on a large history of Australian art, and as I was working through the 1960s and 1970s, there appeared these two huge sort of maverick figures, one based in Melbourne, George Balderson, and one based in Sydney, Brett Whiteley. They were, as you say, born within about a month of one another in 1939, 
and they had rather similar trajectories. Because just think back of what art was like in the 60s. When this is when abstraction became sexy, became popular. We were moving towards minimalism, conceptual art. 68, of course, we had the field show, which has recently been re-shown at the NGV um, in Potter Centre at uh, Federation Square. And these two maverick figures were both staunchly figurative. There were people who actually were preoccupied with existentialist ideas, um, red-hot angst issues. They, there were so many similarities. And as I was sort of working through these, um, I realised also that contemporary critics um, in Sydney and Melbourne were frequently pairing them, saying, well, these are the two sort of oddbobs in Australian art. And I thought to myself, well, listen, wouldn't it be interesting if we actually got them together? It's sort of our equivalent of Picasso and Matisse. If you like, on one hand, they're almost like poles apart. And what we realised that actually when we put them together, that's Picasso and Matisse, uh, they seem to be two sides of the same coin. And oddly enough, this is exactly what's happened in this exhibition. So my brief was basically to bring together the best of George Balderson and the best of Brett Whiteley. So it's a very, very large and very... I probably shouldn't say too publicly, expensive exhibition to bring together. Like we brought together this 22-metre-long um, American Dream by Brett Whiteley from Western Australia. And we've assembled it and put it exactly how the artist intended it when he created it in New York. So anyway, we've got these juxtapositionings, and it may be slightly corny, but I thought it was a way to go, was we um, basically displayed Whiteley's work on white walls and Balderson's work on so these sort of gorgeous bluey black walls. So you've, you've got, if you like, as you move uh, through the exhibition, which is on in Federation Square, uh, you've got, if you like, these two artists constantly involved in every room in a conversation with one another. And what I found fascinating about it is that when you actually look at the work, it's not so much what's on the white wall or on the dark wall that counts, but it's really the seams between, when they meet and what they say. And uh, to give one example is that uh, after we put the exhibition on, I walked Wendy Whiteley through the exhibition. And she said, oh, yes, of course we know Balderson, but it's wonderful how much more I've learned about him. And then as she walked through, but you know what? The biggest achievement for me, I found out so much more about Brett. And that's what happens, I think, when you sort of, in a Zen way, juxtapose A against B, you sort of realise what's happening with the other artist. And both emerge much stronger for the experience. And as you said, uh, George Balderson in the 60s and 70s in Melbourne was a huge presence. Sellout shows, um, basically got every prize that moved, represented Australia at the um, Biennale in São Paulo, um, highly fated. But then at the age of 39, uh, in a single vehicle, alcohol fueled accident, wiped himself out. And perhaps, uh, I've, as I've learned, one of the reasons that he is now kind of less known than Whiteley is because Whiteley had a widow who championed his work, who really pushed it into the public domain, whereas uh, Balderson's widow was not part of the art world Absolutely. and stepped back and so consequently did not have that kind of championing of his work. When uh, George died, it's obviously very, very unexpected. His widow, Tess Balderson, she was 29 years old. She was an artist in her own right. She had two tiny babies and <clears throat> she basically panicked in a way, uh, locked up the studio, uh, all in a big shed in St Andrews outside of Melbourne and uh, went over to France where she lived for the next 17 years. 
So in other words, uh, Balderson was taken off the Australian art market, off the Australian screen. Um, no one was actually promoting his work. And as you say, when um, Whiteley died, first he was considerably older, he was 53, so he had those extra few years uh, of batting. And Wendy very much made it her life's work to promote the, Balders- the Whiteley legend. And Wendy was the person who um, placed the works in key collections, uh, promoted the work, and it's been an absolutely sterling job to keep his memory alive. Establishing the studio next to the Art Gallery of New South Wales, all of this is sort of, and uh, Whiteley is a sort of a, an ongoing soapo, soapy. It's a, a great saga. Uh, the person in the street, if you can find one, if you ask them, have you ever heard of Brett Whiteley, you probably get quite a number of people who would give a, a grunt of approval, say, oh yeah, yeah, he's the one that these the, the, these the Lavender Bay pictures and so on. While Balderson, uh, anyone in the hardcore arts community, yes. And they speak with a lot of passion. You know, one of the funny things is after the show's opened, I had a few people coming around, uh, a senior Melbourne artist saying, great, great show, Sash, great show. But um, why did you put in that Sydney cider? You know, it lets the side down a bit, doesn't it? <laughs> now, talking about them kind of as a as kind of flip side of a coin, as it were, as you were saying earlier, um, th- they clearly have a lot in common. But point, let's talk about points of difference, one of them being that kind of uh, whitely kind of essentially self-trained, uh, and but Balderson very, very rigorously trained, almost kind of a, an obsessively academic approach in studying, learning and formalising his his learning process. How did that formalisation and learning of technique reflect itself in, uh, in Balderson's art? Um, the Murray River is a little bit of a Mason-Dixon line that separates the art world in Australia. And Balderson was very much a Melbourne product. Uh, he spent four years studying at the Tech, the RMIT. Uh, He was the outstanding, brilliant student. Uh, After that, he went to London and spent some time at the Chelsea Art School. And after that, he went to Milan and studied at the Brera Academy. So by the time uh, Balderson finished his apprenticeship, he really had all the skills in the bag. Uh, He was a person who'd been exposed and worked intimately with a lot of artists. Whiteley, on the other hand, uh, despite what you may read, was entirely self-taught. Whiteley um, didn't go to East Sydney Tech. That's what his um, lady love, uh, Wendy Julius, did. Uh, Whiteley did attend some evening classes at Julian Ashton. Uh, He certainly was involved with some sketch clubs and travelled around and knocked around with a number of artists, including Lloyd Rees. But he, he picked things up. As he went, if he had a training, it was at the Lintas Advertising Agency. So he came out of that background of advertising, advertising art, and so on. And uh, essentially, uh, he was a totally self-made person. Uh, Brett had this magnetic personality that base base attracted you towards him, and also attracted controversy. Um, he was this phenomenon at the age of uh, twenty. He entered the um, a travelling scholarship held at the Art Gallery of New South Wales, run by the Italian government, and lo and behold, wins it. And he is against very, very stiff competition from very established artists. And you can't fault the judge; it's Russell Drysdale. Uh, so, at the age of twenty, he goes to Europe for the first time. He goes to Italy. 
uh, his, his schooling is more or less on the run. He looks at medieval and Renaissance Italian art, modern Italian art. Uh, at the age of 21, he's joined by Wendy. They arrive in London. And then suddenly he actually lands on his feet. Uh, he's included in some of the key exhibitions of the day. Um, he, he gets on side a number of key heavy hitters in the London art world. Uh, the Tate acquire one of his works. Uh, the, he was the youngest living artist that they ever acquired for their collection. So all of these things are happening uh, in Whiteley, uh, and he's just sort of self-promoting the work. Um, he has the right contacts. Um, he's a, he looks the role of the artist. Um, um, Russell Drysdale refers him to have that Harper Marx look. Um, and I le- re- recently learned from Barbara Blackman that she actually coined the phrase the Shirley Temple of Australian art. <laughs> and, and he's in a time in London where uh, Australian art is sort of hot, it's sexy. Sid Noll and Arthur Boyd, there's a whole host of them there. Uh, it's a time when people are looking at Australian art. This is, we're talking about the early 60s. And um, Whiteley's the youngest one there, but he's, if you like, riding on a crest of a whale. A wave there, and uh, he is also uh, starting to look very much at Francis Bacon, an artist who actually meets and s- sketches and does a portrait. Um, so he's very much in the swing of it, and it's quite courageous because he's producing these lovely um, tonal abstract paintings. And we gathered a whole group of them for the exhibition. It's actually quite a knockout section. And some people say this is the best work Brett ever created. It, it they are incredibly. Um, wondrous paintings and at the age of 25 he more or less um, decides to change course dramatically becomes staunchly figurative and for his subject matter turns to the grisly murderer Christie John Reginald Christie as a person who lived uh, in the 30s um, in London and ended up murdering a number of women uh, gassing them to death and then raping their bodies uh, it was a notorious crime. Uh, Whiteley had already heard of it while still back in Sydney. And just by coincidence, uh, when they first came to London, they were actually living 120 metres from the house in which Christie had lived. It was this sort of strange coincidence from Ladbroke uh, Grove through to 10 Rillington Place. Um, I learned fairly recently that actually Whiteley's obsession with Christie went a bit further. He actually broke into the house where Christie lived, uh, which did not please the tenant who was actually living there <laughs> at imagine. the time. So, Whiteley is off in, in London doing all of this, uh, whereas George uh, Baldesson is back in Melbourne and looking at the catalogue uh, for the exhibition, and the exhibition we're discussing is Baldesson-Whiteley Parallel Visions on at the uh, NGV Australia, uh, the Ian Potter Centre at Federation Square until the 28th of January, so it's on now. Tonally, I mean, what I know of Whiteley's work, I'm much more familiar perhaps with the, the later works, yeah. very bright, vivid colours. Baldesson's works, there's a, a sombre quality to the to the palette that he's using there's kind of a predominance of greys and browns and uh, and and shades of kind of, of darker yellows for example so it really seems like staying in melbourne while whiteley is off kind of in the the bright lights overseas there's a, a kind of a, a darker quality to baldesson's work i think baldesson was based, based in melbourne as you say for a lot of the time 
But if you look at the early work of both Whiteley and Balderson uh, of this period, they were both rather monochrome and they're rather subdued in palette. Uh, the other thing is that uh, Balderson actually was primarily a printmaker and a sculptor. He was not a painter. And there's a bias in Australian art that art is really told in stories of painting. You know, it's all about uh, big slabs of paint by the blokes. And that's how you write the history of Australian art. It's not about people doing needlework or people working um, in prints or people working in sculpture. Um, Balderson didn't stay in Australia uh, completely. Firstly, one must, must remember that he's actually born in Italy. He was born in northern Italy, and um, shortly after he was born, his mother, who had been early as a child to Australia, uh, went back to Australia uh, to try to sort of set up the nest in Melbourne for the family. Uh, this is in '39, and we, we have this really um, strange proverb in Russian, which is, if you want to make the gods laugh, tell them your plans. And essentially, the moment Camilla left for Australia, and um, Balderson was to join her with his father, Luigi, um, the war broke out. So really for the first 10 years of his life, he spent in Italy, um, separated from his mother. Then they were reunited in 49 here in Melbourne. And after he finished study at RMIT, he did go and live and work uh, in London and in Italy. And subsequently he also worked in, in, in Paris in Japan. So, in other words, he wasn't totally sort of, if you like, domiciled just here in Melbourne. But yes, uh, his world is one of sort of murky, existential, uh, rather uh, moody, difficult, and sometimes quite oppressive images. But what, what you see in this exhibition, uh, that with both artists, although they start from these sort of uh, rather... Uh, tonal masses, that when you move into later work of Balderson, and when we say later, remember his entire oeuvre is created over about 14 years. There's not a lot of wriggle room there. But within a couple of years, he does move into these rather colourful, huge works, into um, human-sized sculptures. Well, the pears, for example, that have the been... Pears. Uh, the pears. <coughs> I know they're at the, the uh, National Gallery in Canberra and they've been recast for That's this exhibition. Right. Yes. Yeah. Well, there's many pears. Um, there's 11 pears at the Art of New South Wales. Uh, the court and steel ones are at the facade of the National Gallery of Australia in Canberra. And this is a set of bronze pears. So pears are sort of very anthropomorphic. Uh, pears are you and I. Pears are involved in conversations. Pears have this sort of metaphysical tradition in Italian art, for example. Uh, you have these huge fruit in uh, De Chirico's work, uh, in Magritte's work. Uh, these are sort of these strange... There's a strangeness about it. Um, and when you enter the exhibition, uh, the first thing that greets you uh, is a group of these monumental pears juxtaposed with this vivid lavender blue um, painting by Brett Whiteley in the foyer. Uh, the exhibition is really one that's designed to have this huge wow factor as you move from room to room. But I think once you actually get over the wow factor, there's a lot of these conceptual questions that are raised. Because if I wanted to say, bring back, what is things that unite the two? They're two artists who basically ask the question, what is it that makes us human? How do human beings unite with the rest of living creatures? And they both believed that art really mattered. Art was something that through which you could better society, 
change society and improve humankind. Paul Desson, Whiteley, Parallel Visions. Sasha Christian, thank you so much for joining us here at Triple R. Thank you, Richard. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.